Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 1, to the passage that was just read for us. We continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1. And as, you're, as you find your way there, I want to tell you about my friend Liz. I, uh, Liz is a friend of mine from back in the day who was at one point diagnosed with a severe form of, of cancer. Uh, doctors went in after she started showing some, some signs and some symptoms, and they ran some tests, and they discovered uh, numerous tumors on her, uh, numerous tumors in her body, and said that within a couple of weeks, uh, my friend Liz uh, was going to die. Uh, they concluded that there was really no medical course of action to be taken, uh, which was a really unfortunate news for her to hear, as well as for my, the community that we were all a part of to hear. Liz was a 20-year-old college student at the time, a, a brilliant young lady who had high aspirations for medical research and, and making much of her life for the kingdom of God. And, and uh, so hearing this news just didn't sit well with her, it didn't sit well with us. We were all upset, and we could only think of one thing to do. And so what we as her community did was we invited her to one of our homes and we showed up in this home and we rallied around Liz and we decided to bring her to the only one who was both capable and compassionate enough to help. And so we gathered together one evening and, and we placed our hands upon Liz as a way of just affirming our solidarity with her, letting her know uh, in that visible way that we were in her corner, that we were for her, that we were with her as she walked that road. And, and so we rallied around her, placed our hands upon her, and we just went to Jesus. We brought Liz to Jesus in prayer. We asked Jesus to heal our friend Liz. But we also asked Jesus to help us handle whatever he decided to do in that moment. So we prayed for her healing, but we also prayed for Jesus to help us as our community as, as we wrestle through all the emotions and the fears and the anxieties that we we're feeling as a result of her illness. So we prayed together for 45 minutes to an hour or so, and then everyone left and went home. No one left with all that much excitement or expectation. We just kind of left. There was a, 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 a soberness to us. There was a sobriety to us as we departed the house. And and then a couple of days later, Liz returned to the doctor for a follow-up visit. The doctor went in to run similar tests to the ones that he had run a few days prior to our gathering. And when he began to look into Liz's body and discover some of, and to look for the things that he had saw just a few days prior, he, he was dumbfounded. He was baffled. He didn't see an, a hint of cancer in her, bodies, in her body. He was, he was confused. He was bewildered. He did not know how it was possible and... And we, when we learned about it, we were all just amazed. We were astonished that Jesus would bring such healing to Liz's body. Now, had I not been so close to the situation, had I not been involved in what was going on in that moment, I would have been skeptical, I would have been critical, I would have had a hard time believing. Well, are we sure that that went down that way? Are we sure that Jesus healed Liz? I would have had my wrestles. Even as a follower of Jesus at times, I, I sometimes observe Jesus doing things, and even then, I, I have a hard time believing uh, what Jesus is capable of doing. And, and so in this moment, had I not been there, had I not witnessed it, had I not walked through this this situation with her and with others, I wouldn't have believed that Jesus healed Liz, but I assure you that's precisely what happened. Jesus healed my friend Liz because that's the kind of thing that he does. His kingdom came to bear on her life in that moment, in that particular way, and it floored everyone. 
It amazed everyone. It astonished everyone. Jesus healed her because, quite honestly, that's the type of thing Jesus is both capable and compassionate enough to do. This is the kind of thing you see Jesus doing all throughout the Gospel of Mark. You see him time and time again healing people. You see him casting out demons. You see him performing miracles that leave people dumbfounded, leaving people astonished. And had Peter not observed those firsthand, had he not witnessed the power of Jesus, chances are Mark would have never caught wind of these stories to write them down for you and I. But since Peter was so close to the situation, walking and walking with and observing Jesus, seeing him do the kinds of things that he does, he then relayed it to his disciple Mark, who wrote it down in a book called The Gospel of Mark, which is what we're studying, studying tonight. And so as we read through the book of Mark together, as we continue our journey, we're going to continue to see just a flurry of redemptive activity. A flurry of redemptive activity as the kingdom of God is brought into the world through the person and the work of Jesus. And what Mark does all throughout this book, he's very careful in the way that he writes it and some of the language that he uses to describe these events, to, def- to describe this flurry of redemptive activity. And, and so one of the ways that he cues us into this power of Jesus, this capability of Jesus, is by using a particular type of verb all throughout the gospel. You see, Mark has a tendency to use Greek verbs that portray actions that are still in process, actions that are still happening, actions that aren't really brought to a completion. He uses a particular kind of verb all throughout this book as a way to encourage you and I And to assure us that the kind of things we see Jesus doing in the gospel, Jesus continues doing today. That the kingdom of God that Jesus brought into the world, this kingdom is still moving through the world. And Jesus continues to change lives. He continues to transform people. He continues to bring redemption to individuals and homes and people groups all over the planet. As we read through the book of Mark, our hearts should be stirred with that dynamic that the types of things you and I witness Jesus doing, Jesus continues doing today. So when you see Jesus heal, you can rest assured that at times, Jesus still heals people today. When you see Jesus casting out demons, rest assured that Jesus continues dispelling darkness in the world today. When you see Jesus forgiving sins, it should encourage us to know that today Jesus is still forgiving sins. This is the Jesus that we have. This is the kind of kingdom that you and I are a part of as we've trusted in Jesus and given our lives to Jesus. This is what the disciples are witnessing and observing as they're walking with Jesus. You know, earlier in chapter 1, Jesus recruited a few guys to follow him, his first disciples. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and these guys are walking with Jesus through Galilee, and they're seeing Jesus kickstart his ministry. They're seeing with their own eyes Jesus' miraculous power and the authority that he's wielding. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 21 through 28, and we saw Jesus enter the synagogue, and he taught there on the Sabbath. And he astonished everyone with what he taught, the things he revealed about who God is, the things he revealed about what life is about, just left people floored. 
They were astonished by the authority he wielded in his teaching in that moment. But then you remember that there was a, an odd instance where someone stood up in the middle of the gathering and, and interrupted Jesus, a, a man who was being tormented by an unclean spirit. And then Jesus took it in stride and he liberated that man from his oppression. He brought redemption to that man's life in that moment. And so it was a wild service. It was a wild gathering. And so when that gathering winded down on that day, the Jesus and his disciples then go home. They go to Peter's house, presumably to share a meal together, presumably to perhaps unpack what just went down in the synagogue and talk about the things that were taking place in and through Jesus. And so they get home, and, and what's interesting, when you read this scene found in verses 29 through 34, you're reading that the types of activity that started in the synagogue continue to take place in the home. And what Mark is doing when he puts these two scenes together, beginning in verse 29, he says, And immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. He's reminding you and I that the kingdom of God is intended. It is intended to invade every sphere of life. That the kingdom of God did not belong in the synagogue Exclusively. The kingdom of God intended to invade every sphere of life so that the redemptive activity of Jesus that they just observed in what some might call a sacred space and what some might call during sacred time, that same redemptive flurry followed them home. And Jesus' power shows up in the house because ultimately the kingdom of God invades every sphere of our lives. I wonder if you and I have a tendency as we approach our relationship with Jesus to sometimes want to compartmentalize our walk with Christ. You know, traditionally speaking, we have what might be described as sacred spaces. We have church buildings that are sometimes viewed a certain way in comparison to other spaces and other places in this city. And so sometimes churches are viewed as sacred places, and, and usually we, we talk sometimes about sacred time. And so, well, sacred time is what goes down when the Hallows Church gathers from 5 p.m. to 6.30 on a Sunday evening. And we have a tendency to want to confine our relationship with Jesus and our experience to the, with the kingdom of God to those traditionally to be understood sacred times and places. But what you're finding in the ministry of Jesus as you walk with the disciples in Jesus through this book is that the kingdom of God isn't to be relegated to one time in one place. That the redemption Jesus is bringing to bear on the world, this flurry of redemptive activity, we should expect it not simply when we gather together at this time every week. We should anticipate and look for it when we go home. When we're hanging with our friends, understanding that Jesus makes all of life sacred. Jesus makes all of life sacred, not just Sundays, but Fridays. Not just worship gatherings like this, but social gatherings. When we're hanging with our friends, when we're hanging with our family, when we're walking with Jesus, we are doing so in a way that makes life sacred. And all of a sudden, the kingdom of God brings meaning into every moment of every day. All of a sudden, the kingdom of God brings meaning to every place you step into as a follower of Jesus. All of a sudden, there's potential for the kingdom of God to come and to break out and to break through wherever you are in any moment of any day. 
The kingdom of God is not confined to a sacred space or sacred time. The kingdom of God invades every sphere of life. Jesus makes all of life sacred. So we consider that as we walk through Jesus through the world that is, as we as we do the things that we do as followers of Jesus in Seattle, understand that with Jesus, your life is sacred. And that should affect your outlook on every moment of every day as you walk with Christ. So you see the kingdom of God moving from the synagogue into the home as as Jesus and his disciples return there. But notice what goes down. And Well, let me just give you this takeaway. I've, I've listed out a few takeaways under each one of the headings for this week. And here's takeaway number one. Let's, let's submit every area of life to Christ. If this is true, if Jesus makes all of life sacred, then let's submit every area of life to Jesus. Let's submit it all. Dads, let's submit the way that we love our kids. Dad, husbands, let's submit the way we respond to our wives. Wives, let's submit the way we love our husbands. Wives, let's sub- moms, let's submit the way that we raise our kids. Let's understand that Jesus makes all of life sacred. Everything matters in a follower of Jesus' life. And so we bring everything under the reign of Jesus. We're not going to compartmentalize our walk with Christ. We're not going to compartmentalize our relationship with Jesus and say, well, Jesus, he's got my church community, but he's not really involved or at work in my my peer community outside of church. We're not going to compartmentalize Christ, understanding that the kingdom of God invades every sphere of our lives. And so when you read the flow of this story, Jesus and his disciples then move into the home of, of Peter, and what do they find there? They find exactly what you and I find when we go anywhere in the world. They find need. They find brokenness. They find someone who needs the redemptive activity of Jesus in their lives. This is what happens in verse 30. It says, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, so she's sick. And immediately they told him about her. Now that's a big deal. We don't want to overlook that. When the disciples tell Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law being sick and laying ill with a fever, that was a huge deal. Because there were many cultural reasons why the disciples should have waited to bring this need to Jesus. There were several barriers that stood in the way for why they shouldn't have come to Jesus with this particular need. There were some cultural assumptions that people had about this type of thing. One of which was how people viewed sickness in the first century. There was a tendency for people to think, well, if you're sick then you are under the judgment of God. If you have a fever, it's because you've broken covenant. You've done something wrong. There's a specific sin in your life that's responsible for the sickness you're feeling. So my sickness last Saturday would have been interpreted in the first century as, well, Andrew must have some sin in his life. He must have done something to offend God, and so God's punishing him by giving him the worst virus he's ever had. It was miserable. Well, this was the understanding in the first century, this this cultural barrier that said, well, if a person is sick, they are so not just because of the fallen human condition in general, they're sick because there's a specific sin in their lives. And so to interfere with that, to step in and bring relief would be, according to some, to interfere with the judgment of God, to say, well... 
uh, I'm going to interrupt what God is doing in this person's life to purify them, to judge them, to, to discipline them with this illness. And this whole line of thinking came out of a, an interpretation of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 22, 28 verse 22 said this. In that whole chapter, it's describing what goes down when a person breaks covenant with God. The types of things that would happen to a person. The types of curses that would befall a person. And it actually says this. It says, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever. The very same thing is uttered in Leviticus chapter 26 verse 16. And so the idea is this woman is sick because she has sinned and no one should interfere. That was one barrier. But then the other barrier to why the disciples shouldn't have stepped in in this moment and brought this need to Jesus, sorry ladies, was because it was a woman. Like they should not have exposed Jesus not only to someone who had a fever and was sick, but to a female or a woman who was not blood related to Jesus. You see, in the synagogue where they just came from, there was separation of the sexes. Men and women did not interact with one another socially. They were separated. And that same mentality carried out into the social environment of the first century so that men and women did not interact in public. Especially leaders or rabbis, Jewish influencers like Jesus at this point in time. It would have been inappropriate for him to interact with a woman, much less touch a woman, who was not his wife or was not related to him by blood. And so that was a big barrier. That was a big cultural no-no. Another reason why the disciples shouldn't have brought this need to Jesus. But then the third barrier was the fact that all of this goes down on the Sabbath. If you're familiar with Jewish culture, if you're familiar with uh, the teaching of the Old Testament, Sabbath was a big deal. Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. It was a day of rest. This was the day where everyone ceased from working and And the Jewish leaders and teachers during the first century, they had teased out and fleshed out what that means. They had really fleshed out precisely what does it mean for a person not to work. And there were a lot of things you could not do on the Sabbath, one of which was to care for the sick. You should not work in that way by caring for the sick. And so the the fact that all this is going down on a Sabbath also creates another barrier for why the disciples shouldn't have brought this need to Jesus. But here's the beauty of the kingdom of God. Here's the beauty of Jesus and his way. Neither Jesus nor his disciples allowed those barriers to stand in the way. They understood that the kingdom of God overcomes every cultural barrier. They refused to be walled in by cultural barriers and society social taboos. Because the kingdom of God overcomes every any cultural barrier. And you can rest assured when you walk with Jesus through the world that is, if you participate in the kingdom of God now and you begin to step out of sacred spaces and sacred times and you begin journeying through the world that is in relationship with Jesus, rest assured that as you do so, you will brush up against cultural barriers. You will come up against things that seem to challenge your allegiance to Jesus and challenge your willingness to participate in the various things Jesus wants to do. So we have all kinds of cultural barriers that we too will brush up against, one of which is just this infatuation with a privatized religion. There's a cultural taboo that says if you have a religion, if you have a faith, if you have a belief, that should stay private 
you keep that to yourself. But the problem with walking with Jesus is that it's really hard to walk with Jesus and not talk about him. It's just kind of instinctive to commune with Jesus, to hang with Jesus, to experience his power in your life and the change that he produces. It's really hard to walk with Jesus and keep that private. One of the interesting things about the book of Mark is that Jesus never has to tell people really to go and tell others about what he's done. Many times he's actually trying to prevent people from telling people too early or too often for reasons we'll get to in a moment. But people can't help it. They can't help but speak about Jesus as they see his power and experience it, his kingdom taking root in their lives. And so we don't want to be enslaved to a social taboo or a cultural barrier that says you must keep your religion private or your faith private. But then another one you'll brush up against is the whole idea of tolerance. We live in a culture where tolerance is a, is a big deal. It's an important term. Unfortunately, it's a word that has been redefined in recent decades. There was a time when tolerance simply meant to respect difference. And you could sit in the same room with someone who wasn't like you, who was different from you, and, and you could have mutual respect for one another. That's how tolerance was traditionally understood. But in recent decades, that definition has changed so that no longer does it mean respect difference. It means you must affirm difference. There's a big difference between respecting and affirming. And so when you walk with Jesus and all of a sudden you start talking about Jesus and you start living out the, the life of the kingdom, you're going to find that that kingdom way of living sets you apart from a lot of things. It makes you distinct. It makes you different. And so when that happens and the kingdom of God begins to flesh itself out in your life, making practical changes to your values, to your habits, to your tendencies, it's going to brush you up against cultural taboos. And so when that happens, you and I have to ask ourselves a question. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we more concerned about transgressing cultural taboos than with connecting people to the transforming power of Christ? Are we more concerned about transgressing cultural taboos than with connecting people to the transforming power of Christ? The example you see in this passage is that Jesus and his disciples were more concerned about connecting people to the power of his kingdom. And they refused to be held back by cultural taboos and cultural barriers. So takeaway number two is quite simple. Let's be a church. Let's be the kind of followers of Jesus that love people more than cultural taboos allow. Let's love people more than cultural taboos allow. Jesus and his power is worth talking about. Jesus and his power is worth boasting in. Jesus and his power is worth risking our reputations for the sake of redemption. Jesus and his power is worth risking our social standing or our social status. We want to love people better than cultural taboos allow. And so we're following Jesus to do just that. This is taking place here as the disciples bring this need to, this, to, to Jesus in this moment. And then that begs the question, if, if, if we're going to be more concerned with the trans, transforming power of Jesus than with transgressing cultural taboos, let me, let me give a warning. This does not mean that you become an abrasive, abusive, self-righteous jerk. 
This does not mean you default into becoming an offensive person and an offensive personality. And the reason that is, is because of what goes down next. In verse 31, look at what happens. They bring this need to Jesus. And then in verse 31, look at how Jesus responds. He says, and then Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. The reason why not worrying about transgressing cultural taboos doesn't make us jerks, doesn't make us offensive, doesn't make us abrasive is because we recognize, yes, the kingdom of God overcomes any cultural barrier, but at the same time, the kingdom of God wields the power of compassion. It wields the power of compassion. This is why we do not become offensive in and of ourselves. This is why we do not become jerks. We are wielding the power of compassion because that's what the kingdom of God does. And you see the compassion of Jesus and how he responds in verse 31. You see how it's a personal compassion. Notice how personal Jesus is in verse 31. It says that he came to this woman. And then he touched her. He placed his hands upon her as a way of saying, look, I'm here with you. I'm here for you. I'm identifying with you in this moment. He touches her and then he lifts her up. And the woman responds the only way appropriate for someone touched by the power of Jesus to respond. She began serving. She began serving Jesus and everyone else in the household. She became active as a result of Jesus' compassion in her life. The compassion of Christ is unbelievably personal. There was a guy by the name of Dr. Richard, uh, sorry, Paul Brand, who did a lot of work among lepers. And as he worked among lepers to bring forth the kingdom of God, to love and to care for people who were ostracized and pushed to the fringes of society, he, he reflected a lot on the compassion of Christ. He thought a lot about how Jesus interacted with people to showcase his compassion. And he wrote about it in these words. Just listen to how he describes the compassion of Jesus. He says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the eyes of the blind. He touched the skin of the person with leprosy and the legs of the cripple. I've sometimes wondered why Jesus so frequently touched the people he healed, many of whom must have been unattractive, obviously diseased, unsanitary, and smelly. With his power, he easily could have waved a magic wand. In fact, a wand would have reached more people than a touch. He could have divided the crowd into affinity groups and organized his miracles. Paralyzed people over there, feverish people here, people with leprosy there, raising his hands to heal each group efficiently in mass. But he chose not to. Jesus' mission was not chiefly a crusade against disease, but rather a ministry to individual people. He wanted those people, one by one, to feel his love and warmth and his full identification with them. Jesus knew he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd, for love usually involves touching. Jesus, his compassion is personal. He gets involved with the brokenness of this world. He gets involved with the brokenness in our lives. And he brings his compassion to bear on us in ways that are powerful, in ways that are transformative. What I love about this moment is that as she's laying there sick and Jesus comes close and he takes her by the hand and he lifts her up and the fever's gone. Understand what's happening? 
Jesus in this moment is giving her rest on the Sabbath. He's bringing a reality to bear on her life that God wants for her. She's sick on the Sabbath. Something is ailing her. Something is oppressing her. She's not experiencing rest. And so what does Jesus do as he comes and he brings her rest on the Sabbath? He gives her freedom from what ails her. This is what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is about Sabbath rest. The kingdom of God is about peace. The kingdom of God is about being liberated from anything that ails us. So I'm not sure what you stepped into this room tonight. I don't know what's ailing you in this moment. It might be something physical, some kind of physical illness or physical, physical struggle. It might be some form of spiritual oppression. It might be emu- emotional frustration, mental fatigue. You might have stepped into this room tonight being afflicted and ail- ailing under various shades of guilt, fear, and shame some of which may be tied to sin in your life or it may be tied to sin that's been committed against you in your life. But you've come into this space tonight feeling burdened, feeling ailed by various things. And if that is the case, I want you to know that Jesus is both capable and compassionate. He's both capable and compassionate enough to bring healing to your life, to bring rest to your soul, to give you Sabbath rest. Now his Sabbath rest may take the form of a physical healing. It may take take the form of a deliverance from some particular struggle. Or his Sabbath rest may be just the ability to sustain you through whatever you're going through in this moment, knowing that there's coming a day when Jesus' kingdom is fully known in the world. And when that day comes, everything that ails the fallen human condition will be done away with. There's coming a day when Sabbath will win, will rest will be all that we know because Jesus abolishes every hint of sin, sickness, suffering, and Satan that exists now. There's coming a day when Jesus banishes it all and he brings us all into a full experience of Sabbath rest. This is what's going down in this woman's life. She's experiencing Sabbath in her soul as as the healing touch of Jesus has come upon her. She's being restored, and she stands up, and she starts to serve. You know, being brought rest doesn't mean that you become inactive. Being brought rest means you begin serving with a different type of perspective, You start serving not because you have to, because you're trying to earn something from God or get into his kingdom. Instead, you start serving as a reaction to the rest that he's brought to your soul. You start serving because you want to, not because you have to. This this woman stands and she begins to serve everyone there because that's what Jesus does in us and through us. She begins acting like a disciple She begins doing the various things disciples are called to do. She starts doing the various things the disciples will witness Jesus doing all throughout his ministry. So that you come to Mark chapter 10 verse 45 and you see a moment where Jesus makes this very clear to everyone. In no uncertain terms, he explains why he entered the world. He said, the son of man himself, Jesus, entered the world not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom For many, she's starting to do the very thing Jesus entered the world to do, which was to serve her. And in response, she's now serving him. 
And so when you recognize Mark 10, 45, that verse of of Jesus coming to serve, well, how does he ultimately serve? How does he perfectly serve? Well, he perfectly serves by giving his life as a ransom for many, right? So not only is the compassion of Christ personal, the compassion of Christ is sacrificial. It's Jesus giving his life for his people. It's Jesus securing his kingdom in the world through his life and his death and eventual resurrection. One of the reasons why I love the book of Mark, and one of the reasons why we're kind of moving slowly through this is because Mark is, is a writer where he, he packs so much in in a very short amount of space. In very few words, he says a whole lot. And see, Mark is writing this gospel from the perspective. He knows what Jesus entered the world to do. He knows about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. He knows where the story is going. And so what's interesting is that all throughout the gospel, he begins to drop hints and giving us foreshadows of Jesus' ultimate purpose of how he's going to bring us into the eternal rest of God. And so even here in verse 31, you see hints of what Jesus is about. In other words, in verse 31, you and I, if we look closely, we can see the gospel foreshadowed even there. Listen to the gospel in verse 31. Look at the verbs. Look at what it, how it describes Jesus. It says first that he came. Does that remind you of anything? In those little words, Jesus came, where we get a hint of foreshadowing of our understanding of the incarnation. That when God took on flesh and he came into the human condition, God took on flesh and he stepped into the world. He walked in our shoes through a world that has fallen and broken and reeking of all kinds of injustices. Jesus came. He stepped into that. A little foreshadowing of the incarnation. But then notice what he says. He says, then he took this woman by the hand. He touched her. And you're reminded of of what goes down on the cross where Jesus is touched there, right? Where God became man and he went to the cross where he became touchable. He became mortal. He became killable. So that Isaiah would tell us in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 that, that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was touched on the cross to the point of death. But then if you don't believe me that these are gospel foreshadowings, I would look at the next phrase. Not only did he come, not only did he touch in this moment, you see that he lifted her up. He took her by the hand and he lifted her up. That word lifted is the very same word used to describe the resurrection of Jesus at the end of the story. So you have the incarnation, you have the crucifixion, you have the resurrection of Jesus all foreshadowed in this act of compassion because we're learning that the compassion of Christ is ultimately sacrificial. It is him serving you and I by giving his life to the point of death, even death on the cross. But you and I know that Jesus, after dying on the cross, he did not stay dead. Three days later, he was lifted up, he was resurrected, and then what went down? You're familiar with the story of Jesus. You know that when he rose, he kept rising to the point where he is now exalted, taking his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, being worshipped and adored by countless men and women all over the planet. In other words, the exaltation of King Jesus through the way in which we are now serving him and worshipping him, all hinted at by how the lady responds to her healing. She begins to serve him. 
So you see the gospel foreshadowed in this moment, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, so that we know Jesus to be king. So we're giving him our lives. We're submitting everything to him. We're going forth into the world in submission to Jesus, overcoming any cultural barrier for the sake of the kingdom of God. We're stepping into lives of compassionate service that is both personal and sacrificial, all because of Jesus. Because this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus is about. And when you begin to give yourself in this type of way to Jesus, worshiping him, serving him, allowing his compassion to flesh itself out in your life, things then will get messy for you. Because things get messy for Jesus and his disciples in verse 32. Things get inconvenient. Things require sacrifice. Notice verse 32, it says that that evening at sundown, they, who were they? Every broken person in the vicinity. People afflicted by sickness, people afflicted by Satan. They're all coming to the doorstep and the home of where Jesus is present. They all want to get in on the kingdom of God. So they come and it says that they come at evening or at sundown. Which means that they were not willing to break through the cultural taboos that the disciples were earlier. But even though they delayed in coming to Jesus and bringing their knees to Jesus, Jesus still met them. He still loved them. He still served them. He still showed them compassion, even though they didn't approach it as as aggressively as the disciples did prior to this. So they're all coming to Jesus. And you imagine the scene. It's a smelly scene. It's It's a gross scene. You have sickness, sick people all over the lawn. Just imagine what that might have been like. All these illnesses present there. How contagious. Talk about a bubble around me. You you want to put a force field between the house and the crowd because so much sickness is present there. But not only are there sick people on the lawn, there are people who are tormented by unclean spirits crying out, perhaps striking fear in people. It's the type of scene that if you are afraid to love, you will never love. It's the type of scene that if fear grips your heart, you will never show the type of compassion God's kingdom wants to show. This is what Thomas Aquinas was getting at when he talks about the relationship between fear and compassion. And he says fear is such a powerful emotion for humans that when we allow it to take us over, it drives compassion right out of our hearts. But it doesn't happen, does it? Jesus isn't driven by fear. He's driven by compassion. The disciples aren't driven by fear. They're driven by compassion. And so when it comes to how you and I live out the kingdom of God, loving our neighbors in this city, engaging the brokenness of this world, are we going to be driven by fear or compassion? If it's fear, we're going to stay tucked away in this sacred space. And we're going to confine our relationship with Jesus to this sacred time once a week. But if we're driven by compassion, we're going to step out of these walls. We're going to leave this place on a weekly basis. We're going to walk with Jesus through the world that is. And we're going to meet the needs of our neighbors, both near and far. We're going to show compassion. We're going to love the unlovable. We're going to serve the people around us with compassion. So this is the type of church we want to become. We want to exercise Christ-honoring compassion by personally and sacrificially serving others. That's what we're giving ourselves to because that's the compassion we've received. 
And so the kingdom of God begins to break out in this moment. People's lives are being transformed as the whole city was gathering together at the door. And then in verse 34, it says, Jesus, yes, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. But then notice that strange sentence at the end of the passage. It says, and Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now that's a strange thing for Jesus to say. You would think that he would get to a point where he wouldn't care who's telling people about him, even if it's bad publicity. Bad publicity is good publicity. So even if it it comes from demons, you would think Jesus would allow it. But he doesn't. He tells them to be silent. And this is one of several times throughout this gospel where Jesus will tell people to be silent, to not speak, not tell people about who he is and what he's about. And the reason for that is very important for you and I to consider If we're going to step out of this space and step out of this time in our walk with Jesus, if we're going to seek to advance the kingdom of God, we must realize that the kingdom of God advances according and only according to God's design. It only advances according to God's design. And so here's what that means. It means that the glory of Jesus will only be revealed how when and by whom God desires. How, when, and by whom God desires. So what does that mean? Well, it means in the book of Mark, you think about the how. How was Jesus made known in this book? Well, Jesus intends to be made known, yes, through his miracles and his power and his authority, but ultimately how Jesus is made known in this gospel is through his suffering. It's He's known by the living a life of a poor, homeless rabbi. And he's known by constantly serving those around him in sacrificial ways. And he's known ultimately how through his suffering on the cross. So that you come to the end of the gospel and you find the first confession of who Jesus is that comes from a human being that is, that is appropriate to Jesus. And when he's suffering on the cross is when a centurion, a soldier says, surely this is the son of God. I'm seeing his glory through his suffering. Jesus is made known through his suffering. But his suffering when? His suffering ultimately on the cross. And this is incredibly important for those of you who who may be interested in Christianity. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus right now. But you're here kind of exploring things. And you're trying to figure out what's the big deal about Jesus? What do I need to know about Jesus? Well, you and I cannot know anything about Jesus unless we're willing to look at Jesus through his death on the cross. If the only aspects of Jesus that you're concerned about is his teaching, love your neighbor, love your enemies. If the only aspect of Jesus' life is, is his, not only his teaching, but his miracles, well, he heals people, that's pretty cool, I'm attracted to that. Or maybe his compassion and his willingness to get up and and serve people late into the night. That's pretty cool about Jesus. If that's the extent of our understanding of Jesus, then we do not really understand him at all. We can only see the glory of Jesus when we see him suffering on the cross. A Jesus without a cross isn't Jesus at all. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve how? By giving his life as a ransom for many. So he's made known How? Through suffering. When? On the cross. And by whom? Ultimately God's power. Ultimately God's power. As God is at work in Jesus through his life and his death and his resurrection, this is how we get to know Jesus. And so what that means for us as a church, as our our final takeaway is, 
Let's become the kinds of disciples who trust in the sufficiency of the gospel as we participate in the advancement of God's kingdom. Let's trust in the sufficiency of the gospel. Jesus isn't a lion who belongs in a cage that must be defended and apologized for. Jesus is a lion that is to be let loose. Simply mentioning his name, talking about his death on the cross, affirming the fact that he rose from the grave, giving our life to the gospel story, the gospel message, trusting in the sufficiency of it for the advancement of God's kingdom is how you and I are going to make an impact on this city. It's not through cute tricks, not through gimmicks. It's going to come when you and I give ourselves to the sufficiency of this message, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And I say that coming out of a weekend that I've spent with the elders of this church where we planned together, we dreamed together, we talk about things we should do in 2016. But I walked away from that trip, from that weekend, and I assure you that when we did, we did not walk away thinking, well, if we do X, if we do Y, if we do Z, then the Hallows Church is going to make an impact for the kingdom of God in Seattle. We did not walk away trusting in the plans that we dreamt up. We did not walk away trusting in what we're going to talk about on Wednesday here in this space. We walked away affirming the sufficiency of the gospel, saying if we're going to be anything as a church, anything as a community, we're going to be a gospel people. And we're going to trust that the gospel is sufficient enough for the advancement of God's kingdom in the world that is. Sure, there'll be plans, there'll be things that we do, there'll be strategies and things that we employ to make disciples, but ultimately our trust does not fit in those. Our trust is in the gospel and so I encourage you as you participate in what God is doing here in the hallows, I encourage you to join us by putting your trust in the sufficiency of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for the sending of your son Jesus. I thank you for the life that he lived his remarkable authority, his remarkable teaching, his remarkable power, his remarkable compassion. I thank you for the life that Jesus lived. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the death Jesus died. Thank you for his willingness to serve our greatest need by going to the cross and giving himself up there as a sacrifice of atonement for the forgiveness of our sins, for the healing of our souls, for the redemption of our bodies, for the recreation of the world. Thank you for the sending of your son Jesus to the cross. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that when Jesus died, he did not stay dead. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for lifting him up out of the grave so that we might have hope, so that we might know that he is king, that he is trustworthy, that he is capable to bring about our redemption. And Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that Jesus is now seated at his throne on your right hand. Thank you for the power that he's exercising from that position. Thank you for his glory. Thank you for his wonder. Thank you for the ways that he's still at work in our lives, in the world today. 
I pray, Father, that you would give us grace as a community of faith to live our lives under that reality in a way that would benefit many men and women all throughout Seattle and ultimately around the world. We pray for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done here as it is in heaven, all in Jesus' name. Amen.